Bibles to Acts chapter 4. So far in Acts, Luke's portrayal of the church has been totally positive. We've seen its dramatic birth, its dynamic fellowship, its explosive growth. And while we often hear that no church is perfect, this one comes awfully close. And yet this morning, we come to a passage where we will see a negative milestone in the church's history. This is the first recorded instance of sin. And one of the things I really appreciate about the Bible is that it's brutally honest. It records both the strengths and the faults of people. It shows us their beauty and their blemishes. It records how Moses was righteously defiant before Pharaoh and how that helped enable the children of Israel to come out of Egypt. But it also records how Moses was unrighteously defiant before God and how that barred him from the promised land. We read in Scripture about the faith and courage of David in victory after victory, but we also read how he was a coward and feigned insanity before the king of Gath. Throughout the Psalms, we see David, the man after God's own heart. But we also read in 2 Samuel 11 of David, the adulterer and the murderer. Proverbs records the height of Solomon's wisdom. Ecclesiastes records for us the depth of his folly. The Scriptures never gloss over truth, even when it's painful and ugly. And this morning, we're going to see an ugly incident in the early church. And we will find in chapter 5 and verse 3 that the one behind this incident is Satan. Which shouldn't surprise us because the name Satan means adversary and that expresses his purpose which is to oppose the work of God. And though he's not mentioned by name, he was actually active in chapter 4. They're causing the church leaders to be arrested and threatened thinking that that would silence their witness when in fact it backfired and gave them further opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ. But you know, Satan is a persistent enemy. He doesn't retreat easily. And so when he fails in chapter 4, we simply find him trying a new strategy in chapter 5. His first approach had been to attack the church from the outside using the Jewish religious leaders. Now in chapter 5, we're going to find that he attacks the church from the inside using people who are part of the fellowship. And that's still his strategy today. When he doesn't succeed as a devouring lion, he comes back as a deceiving serpent. Jesus said in Matthew 8.44 that Satan is a murderer and a liar. Murder is external. Lying is internal, and the church has to be prepared for both. What's interesting to me in this account is that before showing us the ugliness of the impurity of the church in chapter 5, Luke shows us the beauty of the purity of the church at the end of chapter 4. And I think that serves two purposes. Number one, it provides a light backdrop against which this dark sin seems all the more vivid. And secondly, 
it reminds us that a church at its noblest and best is only one act away from spiritual tragedy. And so this passage really breaks down into two sections. Number one, the sharing of the church. And number two, the sins of the church. First of all, I want us to see the sharing of the church in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And in this section, we can point out four characteristics of the early church. They had great unity, great power, great grace, and great love. First of all, they had great unity. Verse 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, the early church had grown at such a fantastic rate that Luke stops using numbers. Here he simply calls them the multitude. And that's what makes verse 32 all the more impressive because he says that they were unified. Now, we're not talking here about 25 people. The last number Luke gave us was chapter 4, verse 4, where he indicates that the church was well over 20,000 people. Now, how do you get 20,000 people unified? Well, I think the answer is in verse 32. They were of one heart and soul. This was not a man-made organizational uniformity. This was a God-given spiritual unity. They didn't have a religious club where people all shared the same social level and mutual interests. They were people made up of all races, all backgrounds, all classes, all levels of society who shared the same heart and soul. What kind of heart was it? It was a heart of humility that had repented and surrendered to the Lord Jesus. What kind of soul was it? It was a renewed soul that had been brought out of death into life. You want to know how you can tell a church that has one heart and soul? I think there are two things that will be evident. And for those, I'd like you to just flip over to the book of Philippians for just a moment. Philippians chapter 1. Paul is speaking in chapter 1 and verse 27. And he says, "...only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, or literally, with one soul." And how does that unity express itself? Look at the end of verse 27. "...striving together for the faith of the gospel." A church with one heart and soul will be focused on reaching the lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's evidence number one. Evidence number two is a little further in the book of Philippians, chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul says again, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Be unified. How does that unity express itself? Verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. A church with one heart and soul will be preoccupied with meeting the needs of others. Our concern will not be to gratify our own desires. We will be 
seeking to put others ahead of ourselves. Those are the two evidences that a church has one heart and soul. Do we see those evidences in the book of Acts? Come back to chapter 4. Were they focused on the lost world? Verse 31 says they had a prayer meeting. The house was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they went out with boldness proclaiming the message of Christ to the lost world. Were they preoccupied with ministering to each other? Look at verse 32 at the end. It says, And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. They were not clutching the things that they owned. They were not saying, this is mine. They were saying, what's mine is yours. Paul Cordes used to have a nice trailer that was great for hauling things. And when we both lived out in the country about a mile from each other, I used to borrow it often. In fact, I borrowed it so often that he finally gave it to me. <laughs> if you came up to me today and said, nice trailer, it would be just a little out of line for me to stick my chest out and say, yep. She's a beauty. Or if you came up to me and said, I want to borrow your trailer, it would be a little out of line for me to say, I'm sorry, this is really too nice to loan out. You see, it's easy for me to loan out that trailer because I know how I got it. Now, in reality, that's true of everything I own. Because where did I get it? I got it from the Lord. So I ought to hold on to it loosely. That was true of the early church. All things were common property because they had great unity. Second characteristic was great power. Verse 33, And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now where did they get great power? Well, we know that they got it from the Holy Spirit because that was Jesus' promise in chapter 1 and verse 8. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Verse 31 tells us they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness, with power. But not only did that great power come from the Holy Spirit, that great power also came from their message because we're told here that they were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the Gospel. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But not only did they have great power because of the Holy Spirit, and not only did they have great power because of the message, they also had great power because of their unity. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus prayed in John 17, 21, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. 
Our oneness is powerful. Jesus said it can cause the world to believe. And the early church was an answer to Jesus' prayer. They were united. And as a result, they had great power in impacting their world. Third characteristic of the early church, they had great grace. And that is at the end of verse 33. And abundant grace was upon them all. Grace means favor. And we can understand this in a couple ways. Number one, it can refer to the approval of people. It was used that way in chapter 2 and verse 47 where it says they were having favor with all the people. Though the religious leaders were opposed to the church, the people in general found them at this point in time attractive. But I think there's a second way to take that, and that is to refer to God's favor. And that's probably the emphasis here, and obviously more important. God's grace was seen in their lives. And God's grace was seen in their ministry. And while God's grace is unmerited, that is, we can't deserve it, there are at least certain things we can do to attract His grace. Because James said in chapter 4 and verse 6 that God gives greater grace. You know who He gives greater grace to? It says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives greater grace to the humble. And here we're told that God gave great grace to the early church. They were humbly putting the needs of other people ahead of their own. They were humbly seeking to reach this lost world with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, God gave them great grace. Fourth characteristic of the early church was great love. Verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. There was not a needy person among them. What's that tell you? They had great love. The practical test of a Christian's love is whether he or she is willing to sacrifice financially. James put it this way in James 2.15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And John puts it even more bluntly in 1 John 3.17. He says, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The love of God is not just something you say. And the love of God is not just something you feel. The love of God is something you do. It's active. It's expressed in meeting the needs of others. And the early church did that. They not only gave part of their income, they actually sold houses and property to give. And that's a greater sacrifice. Because many of those things were irreplaceable. And in giving those things, they were really giving away their personal 
security. What they were saying was, your present need is more important to me than my future security. That's impressive. That's love. Some have looked at this passage and, and seen a form of communism here. That they, they, they were sort of all selling everything and coming into a communal kind of living. That's really not what's taking place here. Because in verses 34 and 35 in the Greek, it expresses a continuous action. Which means that they were doing this over a period of time. This was not a one-time event when they all sold everything, pooled it together, and came together as a commune. This was something that happened over time as the Spirit of God convicted their heart to do this. And also later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12 and verse 12 tells us that they had a prayer meeting and they met at the house of Mary, which tells us that people still had houses. And when we come to chapter 5 and verse 4, there we find Peter speaking to Ananias and he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, you didn't have to sell it. And even after you sold it, you could have kept the money. There was no obligation to give. And so this was not communal living. In fact, in verses 36 and 37, he singles out a fellow by the name of Barnabas. If this was compulsory giving, then there's no reason to single this guy out. Because there's nothing commendatory in what he did if everybody did it. Now I want you to notice something in verse 35. It says they sold this property and they laid it at the feet of the apostles. And then the apostles used it to meet the needs of people. And I think that expresses an important principle in giving to the church. We give to the Lord, and in giving to the Lord, we give to the church, and that money is really under the authority of the spiritual leaders of the church, and they are responsible before God for its use. Sometimes people give, and they want to designate where it's going. If that's the only kind of giving you do, then you're failing to understand the authority structure that God has established in the spiritual leadership of the church. They came, laid it at the feet of the apostles, took their hands off it, and said, we're trusting God to work through you to do God's will with that money. Now having said that they were all giving, he then singles out an individual in verse 36 and 37. He says, And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Joseph was his given name, but the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Let me stop right there and ask you if the church nicknamed you, what would your nickname be? Here we're introduced to Barnabas, son of encouragement. We will see him many more times. He's, he's named at least 25 more times in the book of Acts and five times in the epistles. And so he's a prominent individual in the church and his nickname was accurate. Because when Paul got saved, Paul had been a Christian killer. He got saved, he went around and tried to fellowship with the church and nobody would come near him. You know who came near him? 
Barnabas, son of encouragement, and took him to the apostles. John Mark failed in his first effort in ministry, and Paul gave up on him. You know who took him under his wing? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And here we're introduced to Barnabas, and what we find him doing here is he's selling a tract of land, and he's laying it at the apostles' feet. Now that's interesting because verse 36 tells us that Barnabas was a Levite, and the Old Testament tells us that it was not lawful for a Levite to own land. That's a little confusing. Perhaps in the New Testament times they were not abiding by this law, or perhaps Barnabas owned this land in his native country of Cyprus. We're not told. What we are told here, that Barnabas, from the get-go, was being an encouragement to the church because he was giving his all. And so there, there is the sharing of the church. They had great unity, great power, great grace, great love. Which brings us to the second section, and that is the sins of the church. And for that, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And this drama unfolds in four scenes. The pretense, the perception, the punishment, and the purging. First of all, the pretense. Verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. George MacDonald wrote, half of the misery in the world comes from people trying to look like what they aren't rather than trying to become what they aren't. Jesus had a name for people who looked like what they aren't, and that was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means wearing a mask, playing like an actor, pretending to be someone you're not. And no sin drew sharper rebuke from the Lord Jesus than hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 24, he's describing what a master would do to his unfaithful servant. And here's what he says in verse 51. And he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus wants to describe the worst kind of punishment... He says it's the place where the hypocrites are. That tells us something about his evaluation of hypocrisy. Now be careful in your definition of hypocrisy. Failure to reach your ideals is not hypocrisy. Because if that were hypocrisy, we'd all be hypocrites. Because no Christian ever lives up to what he knows he should be. Hypocrisy is deliberate deception. It's trying to make other people think that you're more spiritual than you are. And that was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. They put on a lovely front in order to impress other people. And I think perhaps they watched Barnabas sell his land and lay his land at the apostle or his money at the apostles' feet. And perhaps they heard people making comments like, that's impressive. What an act of love. And Satan came along and whispered in their ear 
and said, you can bask in that same glory. You can accomplish that same thing. You might even get a nickname yourself. And I'll only charge you half the price. And so it says, Ananias sold a piece of property and brought the money. Sapphira wasn't with him. We're not told where she was. I think she was probably out shopping with the other money. He brought it, laid it at the apostles' feet under the pretense that he was giving it all when in fact he was only giving a portion. Which brings us to the second scene, the perception. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? The deceit of Ananias and Sapphira didn't fool Peter. Guided by the Holy Spirit, he saw through their hypocrisy. He had spiritual perception. And if Peter had not been discerning, Ananias and Sapphira might easily have become influential people in the church. Spiritual perception by spiritual leaders is very important. In contrast to Barnabas who gave because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Ananias gave because he was filled with Satan. You say, well, was Ananias a believer? Because you're probably thinking in your mind, can a believer be filled with Satan? It seems clear to me that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. Because this whole account takes place under the heading in chapter 4, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were together. They were giving. They were sharing. Here comes Ananias and Sapphira out of that same congregation of those who believed. Secondly, it tells us in chapter 5, verse 3, that they lied to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 7, that they tempted the Holy Spirit. And I don't see any way someone can lie to the Holy Spirit and tempt the Holy Spirit unless we're assuming that that person is already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, if you look at the result down in chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, And great fear came upon the whole church. Now, if they were not believers, the church didn't have anything to worry about. But the fact that they were believers caused the church to take some serious inventory. Now, what was the sin of Ananias? His sin was not that he gave part of the money because he didn't have to give anything. Verse 4 says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You had no law that said you had to sell it. And even after you sold it, there was no compulsion that said you had to give any of it to the Lord. See, his sin was not in giving half of it. His sin was not in robbing God of money. His sin was in robbing God of glory by saying, I'm giving it all when in fact he was only giving part. His sin was lying to God. He said, God, here's all of it. And he kept back a portion. 
Notice how Peter rebukes him in verse 4. He says, Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. That's interesting. Verse 3, he says his heart was filled with Satan. Ananias might have said, the devil made me do it. But where does Peter put the responsibility? It rests right on Ananias. He listened to Satan. He conceived it in his heart. He lied to the Holy Spirit. Now before we move on, I want you to note something. Verse 3 says Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says he lied to God. If you've got a pen with you, circle Holy Spirit in verse 3 and God in verse 4 and draw a line in between because he's talking about the same person. And this passage confirms to us, along with others, that the Holy Spirit is God. Which brings us to the third scene, and that is the punishment. Verse 5, And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Ananias came in, Peter says, you've lied to God, and he fell over dead. You say, well, God, don't you think that's a little bit severe? I mean, it was only a half lie, or as we would say, a half truth. I mean, you shouldn't have killed him. I mean, maybe made him sick. You know, sometimes... God has to give us an example to demonstrate His wrath. Sometimes we get so comfortable in grace that we forget that our God is a consuming fire. And when He shows us His wrath on those unique occasions, we often say, God, you're too harsh. But the truth is, that that's the way God ought to deal with us all the time. We can be thankful that He has chosen to deal with us in grace. Ananias was an example of God's wrath. You know what the name Ananias means? God is gracious. He also learned that God is holy. And God often teaches us that lesson by example, when he begins something new. Right after the tabernacle was built, Nadab and Abihu were killed for presenting false fire before the Lord. Right after the children of Israel came into the promised land, God told them not to take anything out of Jericho, and Achan took something and he was stoned to death for doing something. Here in... Acts chapter 4, right after the birth of the church, Ananias is struck dead for lying to God. In this dynamic church, full of genuine unity, full of outreach to the lost, God strikes a man dead. Now why does He do that? Because God wants the church to stay that way. Look at verse 6. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. It was typical in the hot climate of Palestine to have the funeral the same day a person died. In this case, they just take him out and bury him. They don't even 
contact the next of kin. They treat him like the Old Testament says to treat someone who is under the judgment of God. And verse 7 says, Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. After three hours, Sapphira comes in. She doesn't even know she's a widow. She comes in thinking she's going to get the admiring accolades of the congregation. She comes walking in probably thinking, maybe I'll get a standing ovation. Instead, verse 8, Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Tell me if the price Ananias said you got for the land, the whole amount that he gave is actually the price. And she lied too, proving herself to be a co-conspirator. And so, verse 9, Peter said, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. This time, Peter is prophetic. He foretells her demise. And it's just like he said in verse 10, And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. There were two fresh graves outside the city of Jerusalem that day to attest to the swift judgment of God. Which brings us to the fourth scene. And that's the purging, verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It didn't take long for the word of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira to spread throughout the congregation. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They made one. And you can bet there was a whole lot of self-examination taking place that night among the church. One of the benefits of church discipline is that it deters others from sinning. And that certainly happened in this case. We read here that great fear came upon the whole church. The church had great unity, great power, great grace, great love. Now they had great fear. And that's a good thing. The reason you and I do some of the things we do is because we're not really afraid of God. As parents, if your children are never afraid of you, you've got a problem. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. See, it's a healthy thought to say to yourself, if I keep on sinning, God might kill me. That's a healthy thought. It's happened before. You know, when I hear about preachers who fall into immorality, you know what my response is? I don't say, huh, look at him. You know what I say? I get down on my knees and I say, God, I don't want that to happen to me. Whatever it takes 
to keep me from putting that kind of blemish on your church and on your name, change me to keep me from that. And every time we see a brother or sister in this church fall into sin, our response ought not to be, told you so. Our response ought to be the same. God, except for your grace, I'd be right where he is, right where she is. Keep me from that. Purify my life. Purge me. You know, it's easy to condemn Ananias and Sapphira for their dishonesty. But it ought to cause us to examine our own lives to see if our profession is actually backed up by our practice. Do I really mean those words that I pray in public? Do I really mean the words of the hymns and the choruses that I sing? Do I keep the financial commitments that I've made to God? If God killed religious deceivers today, how many church members would we have left? You know, as we consider this passage, my prayer is that we'll get a good dose of fear so that we'll get honest with God. So that when our story is written, we won't have a name like Ananias and Sapphira. We'll have a name like Barnabas. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage that shows us both the beauty of the early church and the blemishes. And Father, I pray as we have gone through this passage today that we might be challenged to understand that we have an enemy that wants to defeat us. And He will work from the outside and He will work from the inside. He will devour us like a lion and He will seduce us like a serpent. And Father, help us to be careful to stand in You, in Your armor against the enemy. And Father, I pray too that we might be challenged today by Your actions in the life of Ananias and Sapphira to truly fear You. To realize that You are a God who has come down and met us at the point of our need in grace. But You are still a God who is holy and a God who is a consuming fire. And Father, I pray that we might have the kind of awe and fear of You that causes us to do everything that we can to please You every moment. We pray in Jesus' name.